0: Welcome to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, presented by Easton's new Ultra Micro Diameter
1: Injection Arrows. Injection utilizes the new Deep 6 standard for more big game penetration than ever before. Learn more about the injection today at www.eastonarchery.com. Now here's your host of Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, editor Christian Burke.
0: Welcome to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio. We are the voice of bowhunting, and as always, we're glad that you've taken some of your time to be with us today because we have an absolutely dynamite show. I am excited for uh, this time and been looking forward to this for a long time because I've got one of uh, bowhunting's real uh, living legends uh, on the line with me today, uh, Mr. Tom Miranda. Tom, it's so good to be with you, and I really appreciate you making the time for us.
1: Hey, Christian. Thanks very much. It's an honor to be asked, and um, I'm ready to talk bow hunting.
0: Well, uh, listen, uh, just to give people a little bit of background, uh, I had a chance to just kind of get to know you a little bit just not too long ago at the ata show and the shot shows this year and i was really humbled that you had expressed interest in peterson's bow hunting and possibly even doing some articles for us down the road um uh that was neat and it was neat to hear a little bit about your you know your quest for the slam and i guess it wasn't too long ago that you wrapped that up and joined a pretty exclusive club in the world of bow hunting yeah,
1: I was uh, very fortunate to uh, complete the Super Slam of North American Big Game in May of 2011. Uh I was able because I'm a TV guy, um and been doing TV shows for 25 years. I was able to capture all uh 29 arrow impacts and uh actually come out with a DVD that shows uh, all the hunts and uh, all the trials and tribulations to get a to get a Super Slam. Uh so yeah, I was very very fortunate, very lucky, uh, very blessed. A lot of the super slammers that went before me, uh, were my idols and heroes. And, uh, those were the guys that inspired me to, to move forward. Uh, you know, the the Chuck Adams, the Jack Frost, the Tom Hoffmans of the world, uh, you know, those guys are the guys that influenced me the most in, in, going for the slam. So it was a, yeah, it was a, it was a great accomplishment. And, uh, the DVD is called adventure bow hunter. And, uh, we've done quite well with it. And a lot of positive, uh, uh comments on the DVD, 320 minutes long, so it's uh, longer than the Ten Commandments if you sit down to watch it. Uh, but it's uh, it's a lot of uh, a lot of hardship, a lot of missed shots, a lot of tough hunts, and uh, to get 29 uh, North American animals uh, with a bow and get them all on video, very very difficult.
0: Yeah, and you had uh, you had told me the number. I can't remember offhand though when we spent some time at shot show. How many? Uh, bow hunters, basically in history, have completed the North American Super Slam. To my knowledge, uh,
1: with a bow, there's 22 Super Slammers, and there are 19 bow hunters who have actually registered their slam with the Grand Slam Club OVA Super Slam organization. So 19 registered slams, 22 uh, hunters have uh, uh, at least say they've completed it, 19 of them have registered. So that's what what it is right now, and there's a lot of guys going after it. I know uh, personally of over 30 guys that are trying to finish their Super Slams with a bow, and a lot more guys out there probably than I know are going after it. So it's, a, it's an incredible accomplishment. It's a big feat. You know, uh, nowadays uh, they also have what's called a Super 10, and basically a Super 10 is kind of like a mini Super Slam. It's where a uh, hunter would go after one, uh... animal from each of the ten categories in a super slam so it would be like getting one bear one deer one caribou one moose one sheep uh... And when you get the ten categories filled you got a super ten uh... which is an incredible accomplishment and really spans the the length and breadth of north america of what it would take to do a super slam and uh, it's kind of an interesting stepping stone to go after the twenty nine north american big-game animals
0: Yeah, and uh, I mean, I'm just blown away by that number of 22. Of course, you know, just this past weekend was the Super Bowl and probably, you know, most everyone who's listening now uh, watched at least some of the Super Bowl. And the thing that always strikes me, you know, after the game, of course, some of the the sideline people are interviewing the winning players. And and a lot of those people in the media, of course, are former players themselves. So there were a number of people who had been previous Super Bowl winning players. And they're sort of congratulating these guys from the Ravens and welcoming them to the club. Because, of course, it's a pretty exclusive club to be in the group of guys who have won a Super Bowl. But, gosh, there's, you know... order of magnitude, you know, many, many, many more times people who have won Super Bowls walking around in this country than have gotten the Super Slam with the bow and arrow. I mean, 22 is an extremely exclusive club. You guys could get a a private table at a fine restaurant and get everybody gathered. And of course, some of those folks, uh, I'm sure, are no longer alive. So you're in pretty elite company. But uh, the other neat thing that I really liked uh, when we talked, Tom, is, you know, you told me a little bit about your background. And I'm I'm getting the impression that, you know, you kind of got started in, in hunting and the outdoors pretty much the same way as a lot of the rest of us. And I can't imagine when you were a young man, uh, not that you're still not young, but when you were a kid, I mean, you, you know, it's not like you had this great dream probably to go after the Super Slam when you were just a, a young guy getting started with the bow and the arrow.
1: Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, you don't even have those types of thoughts on your radar uh, when, when you're a youngster. Uh, of course, nowadays, with uh, magazines like Peterson's Bowhunting, television shows, videos like Adventure Bowhunter, a lot of young guys are getting a chance to look at some of these accomplishments that, that weren't available before. When I was growing up in the 60s and 70s, uh, you know, we had Fred Bear. Uh, you know, we had uh, Howard Hill. There were, There were a few uh... videos that were available but of course we didn't have cell phones we didn't have dvds we didn't have a lot of these associations uh, even the pope and young club but wasn't even formed at that point so it, you know you you really didn't have a place where you could gather and meet a lot of these people and talk to them like you do now uh, at, at archery trade show or uh... at the grand slam or, or fci some of the conventions that are available now where a lot of these guys come and, and and you have a chance to meet them. So, you know, you don't think about those things. I, you know, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. I was a trapper. When I was 11 years old, I started trapping muskrats. There was a, a, a river that ran near my house. It was called Big Walnut Creek. And uh, there was a railroad track that ran uh, down there and a trestle that crossed the river. And I would go down there and throw rocks in the river and watch the muskrats swim. And uh, my next door neighbor was a trapper. And one thing led to another. And I ended up following him around on his trap line when I was 11. And uh, he and eventually found girlfriends and I eventually uh, inherited his traps and started running my own trap line and uh, I really got bit by the trap line bug and eventually after high school uh, decided that I wanted to trap for a living and I, um, my parents used to take me to the upper peninsula of Michigan to go fishing and I decided to take my jeep uh, which I had bought with my trapping money by the way and drive north and see if I could find a piece of property that maybe I could build a log cabin on and be a trapper and of course my parents uh, were pretty much distraught in the fact that I wasn't going to go to college and I wasn't going to be an engineer or have a a career um, that I was going to be a trapper, but that's what I ended up doing, and um, I actually built my own cabin and lived for three years in the UP and ran trap lines, and uh, one thing led to another. I took a government trapper job, moved to South Dakota. I started making videos on trapping, and my career just kind of expanded from those very early roots as a trapper. Of course, I had my own... uh, uh... bear recurve bow as a kid and uh... shot my first deer in my teens and uh... you know loved bow hunting but trapping was a big thing for me and when i finally got on tv uh... doing a tv show i found out that trapping really wasn't gonna carry it that i needed to do something if i was going to do outdoorsy stuff i was going to have to do something a little bit different and of course i always loved bow hunting and so i started just doing bow hunts and it was deer hunts at first and then a then a black bear hunt and then an elk and the typical uh, big-game animals that uh, guys who live in the Midwest go after. You're going to hunt your uh, caribou in Quebec, you know, when you first get a chance to go to Canada or maybe a black bear in, in Ontario. Um, you know, that was that was how I started and, and, and built my career uh, as a TV guy. Uh, I was very fortunate to have the opportunity to get on ESPN. It was, a, it was a fluke, actually. I was just very blessed and in the right place at the right time. And they were looking for someone who was a genuine outdoorsman A lot of the TV hosts at the time were ex-athletes, like you said earlier in the conversation, Super Bowl heroes and things like that. And they were looking for somebody who was a true outdoors guy, a true hunter, to to host a show. And and I had kind of just fit the bill, and I was at the right place at the right time. So I was also a pilot and did some other adventurous stuff like rock climbing and skydiving and a few things. And so my first show on ESPN was called Outdoor Adventure Magazine, and it was hunting, fishing, and adventure Eventually, within a year, I was known as the crazy bow hunter that would do anything once. And uh, I rode bulls, walked on fire, did a lot of adventurous stuff. But I also bow hunted in every episode. And um,
0: so, what year was that, Tom, when you first went on ESPN?
1: Uh, July fourth, nineteen ninety-two, was my first episode uh, on ESPN, and I was on there for twenty years before they dropped outdoor programming.
0: And when, when you started with them, was that the? Uh, very beginning of their outdoor programming, or had they already been in that for a while? ESPN started
1: in about 86 with outdoor programming, and they only had fishing. Uh, but, so there was Jerry McInnes had what was called a fishing hole back then, and uh, there were some other fishing shows, Fly Fishing the World, uh, Mark Sosin's Saltwater Journal, Jimmy Houston Outdoors. Uh, these were fishing shows that were on ESPN for several years before they decided to pick up hunting. Wayne Pearson had a show on ESPN in 1991. That was the first hunting show. Uh, Mine was the second, uh, Outdoor Adventure Magazine, in 92. And uh, I was more of an adrenaline sports show that had a dab of hunting each week. I had fishing each week as well. And uh, we did that show for six seasons. And then I changed the name of it to Advantage Adventures and started doing only bow hunting. And uh, that's about 1990. Seven is when I or 1998,
0: I guess, is when actually the shows aired is when I started doing bow hunting only shows and uh, that's... So tell tell me a little bit about what that was like, Tom, going in and working with ESPN. Obviously, you know now it's pretty amazing when you talk about that being 1992, and so here we are. You know, just 20 years later, the outdoor media landscape has obviously gotten a lot bigger and a lot more sophisticated with all the dedicated networks that we have now for uh, hunting and fishing programming. But at that time, you know, you were... I guess you'd say a small fish in a big pond and taking your outdoor, uh, lifestyle programming into the sort of the mainstream right there with, you know, basketball and football and baseball and hockey. How was that received? And, uh, did you have any kind of unique or interesting experiences rubbing shoulders with people from other parts of the sports world who might not quite have seen hunting on the same par with, uh, you know, other mainstream sports?
1: Well, uh, espn was the tip of the spear you know i mean it was the pinnacle it was the top you couldn't get any higher i mean it was the best network to be on and uh they had a very small outdoor programming schedule and it was on saturday mornings originally from 7 a.m to about 11 so there was about eight tv shows uh every week that aired on espn and if you were one of those eight you were kind of the the golden child, the gifted ones. And they were very, very strict with uh, the way the shows had to be made, the quality of the shows. Um, but you rubbed elbows with the elite. And uh, I learned, I, you know, I cut my teeth making shows for ESPN. And that's that's where I learned how to tell a story in an outdoor show. And that's where I learned. I went to sports center school and I went to school to learn how to do narrations better and you know, they did a lot of training with us, too, because we were just, especially me, because I was just a hunter. I didn't have a professional studio putting my shows together. I was actually edited all my own shows myself in my house, Uh, so it was pretty pretty much the trapper background, you know, comes through, because trappers are do-it-yourself guys, and and that's what I am, a bow hunter, a trapper. I mean, I'm a do-it-yourself guy, and so, I would write the scripts, I would hire a cameraman to come with me and film my hunt, and then I would edit it together at home. And uh, that went to ESPN and played to 80 million households uh, back in those days. And ESPN's well over 100 million households. Now ESPN2's 90 million households. So uh, it was pretty crazy. And, yeah, I got to meet, you know, just crazy famous people. Um, I've had lunch several times with Dick Buckus and uh, uh, just other sports celebrities that were there. And of course, all the other guys that had outdoor shows that I looked up to, uh, you know, they're just, uh, it was, it was pretty crazy. Just, you never knew who you were going to meet, um, uh, when you went to Bristol, Connecticut for a meeting and, uh, Just it was it
0: was it was awesome. Yeah, and you told me kind of a kooky story at the shot show. I hope you don't mind me bringing it up and sharing it. But you know, of those eighty million households that were seeing your show back in those days, I'm sure like you know seventy nine point nine million of them loved your show. But there, of course, there's always the uh, a few oddballs out there. And you said that at one time, I guess somebody had called the the studios at ESPN and made a threat against you but somehow they ended up leaving that on Chris Berman's voicemail. Tell, you know, Do you mind sharing that story and how that ended up, and then you got to, I guess, spend some time with Chris and all that?
1: Yeah, well, uh, the, the, the deal was is I did bow and arrow hunting shows, so uh, the animals were a lot closer when they got shot. It wasn't this rifle shot 200 yards away. And so on my episodes, the animals were very close, and we had lots of close-ups of animals, deer right under the tree and things like that. And so... It becomes, you know, a little bit more uh, dramatic and more. It's more of an emotional thing to see a bow kill uh, at close range compared to a rifle kill at a distance. And uh, people who weren't hunters who watched ESPN sometimes would accidentally or purposely turn on their TV on Saturday morning, and here would be uh, Miranda shooting a deer at 10 yards with his bow, and it created a lot of uh, hate mail towards me uh, from people who weren't hunters and uh, I I got more mail than anybody else, and it was because it was the archery and because it was the up-close and personal, uh, you could see everything uh, compared to the rifle hunting, but yeah, someone had called in and tried to get a hold of me or somebody at ESPN and actually pressed the numbers required to get to Chris Berman's voicemail. Of course, he was known back then and probably still today as Mr. ESPN, and uh, he was a Spain Sports Center guy, back, 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 you know, that guy, so uh, they left the they left a the voicemail on his on his voicemail of that they wanted to kill me and it was basically basically a death threat against Tom Miranda for killing animals on ESPN and of course when the network called me they asked me where I was and I said I'm on home and uh, about that time the highway patrol pulls up in front of my house and one thing leads to another and uh, it was it was pretty it was pretty wild for a while I think it really rattled ESPN a little bit to to know that there were people out there that just were that much against hunting and uh you know to, to you know that radical to a point but um yeah i got the opportunity later to go to bristol and and uh meet Berman and and all that and it was kind of a big joke for a while around the studios but it's uh it's been a long time ago and uh yeah it was one of the many stories i guess that that i had while i was working there
0: so you had a obviously had a good uh long run with espn and like you said uh gave you Uh, a pretty broad reach around this country and and there's no doubt that you know that was a big big part of obviously elevating you know Tom Miranda's name uh, uh, within the hunting community you know at large and specifically within the bow hunting community and I know uh, not too long ago now ESPN made the decision for whatever reason to move away from the outdoor segment and uh, so you had to make some changes and uh now you're part of the uh the Intermedia family here with Peterson's Bowhunting and Sportsman's Channel and and all the other properties that we have which is great for us um tell me a little bit about that transition and uh, you know the new television projects that you're working on now well
1: uh yeah when ESPN and it we knew about 5 years before it happened that ESPN wanted to go back to stick and ball sports i mean that's where they made their money that's that was a, a good model, you know. ESPN also owned Bassmasters. Uh, you know, ESPN was owned by Disney, so that's uh, you know another it thing still that, is, yeah, yeah, exactly. But uh, that was a uh, that you know whether that affected them getting out of outdoors or not, I don't know. But I think they wanted to go back to stick and ball, and they were looking for a place, you know, shows to take up the outdoor block areas. And what happened? Soccer became very popular. There were some World Cup games and the U.S. Uh, women's soccer team did well in the Olympics back in the day, and so soccer was kind of getting growing. And, you know, at 8 o'clock on Saturday morning is 2 o'clock Saturday afternoon in the in Europe, and that's when the big soccer matches are going on. And so ESPN decided to swap out some soccer um, in, in place of the outdoors, and that pushed us all away. Uh, I immediately was called by several different networks and uh, was able to work a deal with – Sportsman Channel and NBC Sports Network to air my shows simultaneously. So right now, my shows air on NBC Sports, uh, and the show's called Territories Wild. Uh, and it airs on NBC Sports and Sportsman Channel. So um, that that what it did, it, was, it allowed me to get the, the household numbers back up because NBC Sports is around 80 million household, and Sportsman Channel is near 30 million. So that put me back up to 100 million households, which is what I was getting on ESPN, so... Um, that's important for sponsorships and uh, uh, TV commercials. And a lot of the reasons you do TV, the financial side of it, you've got to have eyeballs watching the shows. And, you know, the more people that are in the universe of the network, the more opportunities you have to have higher ratings and, and bigger sponsors. And I've been blessed to be in it long enough to have the top sponsors in the industry, the Matthews Archery and Realtree Camo and Cuddyback Trail Cameras, those types of companies are some of the biggest in their categories. And uh, they've been with me for a long time, Realtree, since 1989.
0: So, Yeah, that's great. And, you know, when uh, people see you on television or, you know, they have an opportunity maybe to look at your, your DVDs or uh, the really nice book that you put together, um, also about your Super Slam. I mean, I think, you know, the thing that I like about, Uh, The time that we've been able to spend is that in spite of your, um, you know, myriad accomplishments in the bow hunting realm, you're a very approachable down-to-earth guy, and I think that comes through, you know, in your programs as well. But you know, for so many of us, we think, well, you know, I can I can get the white tail and the mule deer and you know, hopefully maybe a bull elk and an antelope. But gosh, you know, to get that stone sheep or the barren ground caribou, you know, etc. etc. That's kind of beyond my reach. Uh, you're obviously you know didn't grow up uh, going to school with Warren Buffett's kids or anything either. Uh, how did you manage to actually get this all pulled off? Uh, some of these hunts, I know cost a lot of money and uh you know you managed to uh get this whole super slam done um how did that kind of come together for you as you started to get some of these species under your belt and at some point made the decision you know that you'd go for all 29 and then you know you had the task of trying to get all that arranged Uh, was television kind of the big vehicle to really open doors for you there or or was it something else
1: well i was um you know, I had over half the animals uh before I even thought about doing the slam. Uh it was be- uh, you know, when I started doing uh Advantage Adventures, it was my opportunity to kinda do the hunts I wanted to do and I pretty much wanted to be an adventure bow hunter. I enjoyed going to New Zealand and hunting red stag. I enjoyed going to Africa and hunting Cape Buffalo. I enjoyed doing a lot of different adventurous type trips and hunts. And of course when you're a television bow hunter, uh you have a budget. That you have to stay within, and you have, sh- but you, but part of that budget is to make TV shows, and so I would do uh, deer hunting shows close to home and and with pals and friends that I had to to keep uh, expenses low on some of those kind of shows, to where I could save some money to go do some of the more exotic type hunts, and of course because I did so much stuff in Africa, Australia, New Zealand, other places. I didn't really concentrate specifically on North American animals until I got to about halfway to like 14 or 15 animals, and then all of a sudden it kind of hit me, wow, you know, I have all these on video, and I'm all halfway to a slam, maybe I should try to go for a slam, and uh, I bought all my big game hunts for the slam, I didn't trade anything out with TV or anything like that, but it was a goal, it was a goal that I had, and and I had to budget, budget the money aside, I had to save up the money. It took me 13 years uh, to kill the Super Slam, a North American game with a bow and arrow on video. It took me 13 years to do all the hunts. And, you know, that's a long time. And, I mean, you know, if you do 10, if if it took you 10 years, you'd have to do three a year, pretty much, to get it done. So, 13 years was less than three animals a year to do the Slam. And, of course, I have to do, as a TV producer, I've got to do at least 10 original shows every year, try to do 13 original shows. So, Um, Some of the more expensive hunts like stone sheep and things like that were things that I had to budget for and save for. And I had to do maybe one year a little less hunting, uh, exotic stuff, hoping that I could save the money to do that stone sheep hunt. And, of course, it put a lot of pressure on you, too, because those are very difficult hunts with a bow, very, very difficult hunts to get with a bow on video. And uh, in North America, there's no trophy fees, really. So it's not like, well, if you don't get one, you don't have to pay only you know you have to pay the full amount to hunt in North America if it's 10,000 to hunt to hunt a, uh, a an elk or something like that if you don't get one you still pay 10,000 so it's it's expensive and uh, it, it puts a lot you know I didn't have a ton of money to really invest in it so it put a lot of pressure on me to finish you know to to do it it took 54 hunts to kill all 29. So there were a lot of do-overs. I actually went on five different Roosevelt elk hunts to kill one on video. So wow. Well, that's that's uh, the next
0: thing I was going to ask you about is, obviously, um, <clears throat> like you said, to do it with the bow is, is obviously an added challenge. And then to do it with the bow on video is really, you know, handicapping yourself in some respects. Tell me about, you know, I'm sure you had some situations along the way where you know, you really needed that animal and you had an opportunity, but it wasn't, you know, the camera wasn't positioned properly or something like that, and you literally had to walk, watch one of those uh, 29, you know, animals just literally walk away from you because you couldn't take the shot.
1: Oh, yeah, and uh, it, it comes down to goals. I mean, if you go on a bow hunt for stone sheep, very expensive hunt, um, and you're sitting there looking at a stone sheep and he's two hundred yards away standing on a cliff easy to easy to shoot with a rifle uh... it's easy for you to to ask the guide for his gun or the guide could talk you into saying hey you know use my gun and kill him that's a beautiful sheep you're never going to get him with a bow a lot of guys you know because of the money that was spent turn turn around and use their gun or use a gun and kill that sheep and then they have they have a stone sheep but it's not with a bow and from that point they, really don't, uh, they are never going to have a Super Slam with bow and arrow unless they go back and shoot another stone sheep again, and a lot of guys just never do it. There's, there's uh, right around 100 guys who have the Super Slam with a rifle so or muzzle muzzleloader or, or that. So there's quite a few people who have done it with um, firearms. But relatively speaking, with a bow, there's not because it's just that much harder and you really have to be disciplined. And I can think of a story on the desert sheep hunt Uh, obviously the sheep and goat hunts, the mountain hunts, are some of the tougher ones to get, not only on video but with a bow. But on my desert sheep hunt, I was at full draw at 20 yards to a beautiful ram, and my cameraman couldn't see the ram. And I kept, at full draw, I'm whispering, you know, talk to me, talk to me, tell me that you have it, tell me. And he finally just blurted out, I can't see him, I can't see him. And so I took three steps forward at full draw to give him some room to move around me, At that point, it spooked the ram, he's running away, and when he says, I've got him, he's 75 yards, looking over his shoulder, all Mm -hmm. I see is a big white rump patch, I don't have a shot, that's it.
0: Tell me about, uh, you know, one thing that uh, I think that our readers always appreciate, I think because we can all relate to it, is, you know, everybody is human, you know, whether that be yourself um, guys like Randy Almer who write for me regularly. And I always appreciate the fact, you know, when I screw up out there in the field, I, I like to call Randy sometimes and cry on his shoulder. And Randy will tell me some stories about the ones that he's missed. You know, and that always kind of makes me feel better because I'm like, you know, if Randy Almer misses, it's okay if I miss sometimes too. Tell me about some of your heartbreak stories. I'm sure that, uh, y- you know even Tom Miranda misses every now and then
1: yeah I miss a lot Uh, (laughs) that's
0: that's part of bow
1: hunting I mean you know some some people will say if there's an arrow in the air there's hope but I mean I need to have the video camera running so a lot of times if you can stalk him by yourself you've got a way better chance than stalking him with with the cameraman over your shoulder and the camera I look at the camera as a third person and sometimes on guided hunts the guide wants to be there too and uh that really turns into a crowd and makes it even that much more difficult but yeah i mean the thing is is when you're at full draw uh in my mind on a hunt you get one chance a bow hunt you get one chance so you either capitalize on that chance or you don't and if you don't you may most likely go home with nothing and you have to really be prepared to go home with nothing if you're going to stay a bow hunter and you're going to harvest your animals with a bow only and uh yeah, I mean, there's nothing worse than watching an arrow fly over the back of a, a woodland caribou or uh under the belly of a Roosevelt elk or uh watch a uh very expensive uh desert sheep run off because the cameraman can't find him in the viewfinder and he it, it's it's just part of it's part of it, but that's what makes it so uh exciting and so uh rewarding at the end when it finally all comes together and you make the shot and the animal goes down and it's a quick clean kill and you walk over to him and you know that you stalked in the range and you went to full draw and you made the shot and you got him and it's all on video to relive over and over again um, it's why i cry at the end of the video when i finally got my desert sheep i break down and i didn't know what to say i didn't it was thirteen years to get the slam i had been working like crazy to get all the animals on video it was the last one and It just overwhelmed me. I just didn't know what to think. I didn't know what to do. All the years of doing it, I always could turn to the camera and say something, and I was speechless. I just didn't know what to say. And it was just all that emotion comes rushing forward. And I think everybody who's ever bow hunted knows that when you you make the shot, a lot of times is when the nerve sets in and your leg starts rattling in the tree stand and you start like, you know, you just get flushed, and it's like, holy cow, man, that was crazy. That was exciting. That buck came right in. Oh, well, you know, that's what makes bow hunting so exciting and and even for me I've shot a lot of things over all these years and every hunt is just as exciting if if I don't get a shot I'm still uh, getting that adrenaline charge that feeling and that's the that's what makes us go back and do it again and again.
0: Mhm. Now, uh, of all the, you know, the 13 years of of chasing the slam and you know well over 20 some years of traveling the world bow hunting what are some of the you know the things that have sort of really become clear to you in terms of uh, preparation and shot execution that you share with people you know i think that you know if you want to let your mind be over analytical you know we can make this bow hunting thing real complicated but at the same time I think we're better off most of the time if we if we keep it as simple as possible Uh, what's your take on that and what are some of the lessons advice tips that you can offer to the listeners of uh, you know maybe a routine or preparations that you go through that help you to be able to capitalize on those one opportunities that you get
1: well, I I think that um, you know a perfect analogy is a lot of guys really struggle catching fo- co- fox and coyotes in traps, and I've given a lot of lessons on how to catch them. And I think the the biggest thing that you learn is is uh, uh, to try to be a good predator trapper, and this book, uh, this also goes with being a good bow hunter, and so, just the same. Is that you know when you're first learning, you need to do everything by the book. You need to take only broadside shots if you're if you're a bow hunter you need to always have clean gloves on always clean boots always pack your trap tight if you're trying to catch a coyote or fox you have to go by the rules but with experience after you've caught a hundred coyotes or a thousand coyotes or five thousand coyotes like i have you learn eventually what you can get away with and you learn your own system and you learn to think um, a little bit outside the box and you you become more of a killer when you've done that and bow hunting is the same way i mean when you're first learning, you have to go by the book. And I get punished sometimes on TV because I might take a frontal shot on a deer, uh, and they'll say, oh, you're teaching people the wrong way to do it. Well, when you start out hunting, you don't want to take frontal shots on deer or any animals because you uh, you don't have the experience, you don't have the knowledge, and you don't have the maybe the wherewithal to get that done in that type of a situation. But when you've hunted a lot, like Randy Almer, for example, you've mentioned his, his name, these guys can make 100-yard shots. You know, these guys can make the shots, and they have the confidence, and they do it. And it's not unethical if you can get it done. And I think I take the first good shot opportunity that I know I can kill the animal with. And more times than not, many more times than not, it's a successful shot. And I think that, you know, I'm thinking about getting the arrow through the vitals. So I'm thinking about, always about the opposite front leg. I'm always thinking about the bone structure of the animal. I'm always thinking about you know is he alert or not you know a lot of times he could be at 10 yards but if he's looking right at you in the tree you know you, you may not want to make the shot you know what i'm saying because he will probably string jump you but if he's if he's calm if he's walking you know if there's other reasons to know that he doesn't know you're there whether it's a caribou elk or whatever a lot of times that element of surprise will let you get away with a lot more and it's just a learning experience over the course of time yeah sure i make mistakes everybody makes mistakes but that's part of learning and you try to learn from those mistakes and go forward and uh... it's what makes it so challenging because every situation is different
0: talk to me a little bit about uh... your own personal shooting regimen obviously with all the travels that you do and all the species that you pursue uh... you have opportunities pretty much throughout the calendar year and i know that uh... you know even later this week, I think you told me you're, you're heading to New Zealand to chase something. So, uh, how do you keep in shooting shape throughout the year? How often do you shoot? How many arrows do you shoot? Uh, and what is your sort of advice for the, for the, uh, you know, average bow hunter in, in keeping in good shooting shape and form throughout the year?
1: I think a, a bow hunter needs to stay in good physical shape regardless. So, you know, I, I run when I'm home a couple miles a day. Um, I get in a sauna, I enjoy that, and I think that that helps me stay somewhat healthy from a standpoint of uh, just heating my body up and getting that internal sweat going and my heart rate up and, and things like that. Um, Shooting-wise, uh, I don't shoot every day, uh, but when it gets close to a time to to, to do a trip, I, I probably shoot 50 arrows a day for a week before I go. Uh, but the thing is, it's not about... It's not about the quantity, it's about um, the quality of your practicing. And one of the things that I do is I'll hang branches over my 3D targets. I have bushes that I hide behind, um, and I try to practice like I'm really hunting. I don't just go out and stand in front of a target and shoot 100 arrows. Uh, I like to kneel down and lean out behind bushes and shoot. And I think 10 arrows practicing like you're really hunting is a lot better than shooting a hundred arrows just standing there. And if you think about it, if you're in a ground blind in Mexico after a cow's deer, and you've been sitting in the same ground blind for three days reading a book, um, when finally that big coos deer comes in, are you uh, going to be so relaxed and so bent over your chair that you're by the time you grab your bow, you're going to have to stretch up and shoot through this hole? Your form's going to be all thrown off, and um, you're probably going to make a crappy shot. And so you have to think a little bit about. All these types of things, that's how real hunting is. You're not going to just stand there like you do a target and shoot. You've got to shoot around the branches. You've got to shoot in holes in the in the bushes, and, and that's how I practice. And I think that that helps really make the difference. Another thing, too, uh, when it comes to form, there's a lot of cheat. Uh, there's a lot of things out there you can do now to cheat your form. And one of them is your bow sight. I shoot a, uh, what's called an IQ bow sight, and it has a retina uh, uh, feature on the actual housing and it sounds like a gimmick but the reality of it is is that retina tells you if your bows torqued or not and it's easy in a ground blind or easy in a tree stand or easy in a situation where you're leaning out to make a shot to torque your bow and try to align your pins and that's going to sh- throw your shot off just a quick glance at that retina will tell you if your bows torqued or not and that can really help you uh, in your bow shooting form and it's just another way that um, I use that retina to check when I'm just shooting in practice just to see that my form is good. You don't have to look at it every time once you've used it for a while, but it's nice to have that check. Mm. And uh, those are the types of things that I think make a
0: difference. Yeah, that's a good transition because that was the next thing that I wanted to ask you about was equipment. Obviously, um, I know that you've been with Matthews for some time, but... uh, being, you know, involved in the archery industry and seeing the progression and the evolution of bow technology, arrow technology, broadhead technology, clothing technology, everything has just gotten so much better, you know, in the past 20 years. Um, Tell me what you think are some of the most significant trends that you've seen in recent years on the equipment side and maybe a few key items. You mentioned that IQ bow sight. What other things do you feel like are really giving you uh, an advantage in the field that you might not have had five or ten years ago, Tom?
1: Well, I think uh, parallel limb design. Um, you know, a lot of people, Matthews came out with it originally, and a lot of people, a lot of the boat companies are using it now. Uh, it just makes the bows a little more compact, it makes them, the brace height's uh, a little bit longer, which makes the bows a, lo- a lot more forgiving. Um, there's there's a lot of advantages to parallel limb design, that's why a lot of the other bow companies are using it now. Um, obviously the bows are quieter, obviously the bows um, are faster, uh, the arrows, now that we don't use aluminum so much, we're using all uh, carbon uh, type products for arrows, the arrows are, are straighter. Um, you know, the broadheads are better. I'm, I'm shooting Rage, two-blade titaniums, and, um, you know, you get pass-throughs on almost every shot. The, the animal dies on video, um, meaning he doesn't run 100 yards. Uh, in the past, using some fixed-blade broadheads, you could get a pass-through and, and not even find your animal,
0: even if it's a good shot.
1: So I mean, you know, there's the lethal technology and broadheads has come up.
0: Now, now uh, let, let me let me jump in on you there because I think a lot of guys of course broadheads is one of the most contentious topics in bow hunting. I mean if you want to have a good debate with any group of bow hunters, you can start talking broadheads and debating the relative merits of fixed versus mechanical and individual heads. But you mentioned the rage, so you're you're shooting pretty much exclusively two blade rages, and that's whether you're going after, you know, a small coos deer in Arizona or a giant, uh, you know, uh, Asiatic water buffalo in Australia, everything, you know, from soup to nuts, and you're you're shooting with those mechanical heads and getting good results. Is that what you're saying?
1: No. Um, when you start talking about thick-skinned game, um, no. You, you don't shoot, you know, the, obviously an open-on-impact broadhead, uh, expandable, whatever you want to call it, is going to take kinetic energy away from the arrow. Um, and you start talking about animals with incredible bone structures, uh, very thick-skinned animals, whether it's Asian water buffalo, Cape buffalo, elephant, all the big animals, you're better off shooting a a lot heavier broadhead than any expandable would be made, 180 grain minimum, uh, 250 grain some, uh, and you're going to want to cut on impact head. You're going to be shooting an 85-pound to 100-pound draw bow. Uh, It's a totally different scenario to go to, Thick-skinned game, uh, dangerous game, uh, in that regard. Now, to shoot a two-blade Rage titanium at a, at a, a polar bear or, or a brown bear in North America, no problem. They're thin-skinned animals, even though they're large and dangerous. Those arrows go through them like butter, and uh, hot, hot knife through butter, and, and they're, they don't go far. Uh, killed two grizzly with uh, Rage in the last couple of years, and they're just um, amazing. They. Both the animals died within sixty yards mm. uh, so it's, yeah
0: that's yeah that's interesting people are always curious, I think, to hear what guys like you are using and uh it uh, doesn 't end the debate, but people people uh put a lot of stock in it, I think Tom, so listen i don 't want to keep you too much longer what uh tell me what's coming up for Tom Miranda in two thousand thirteen uh sounds like you 've got uh, another season of Territories Wild or another year of Territories Wild on Sportsman Channel. And uh, tell me a little bit about the kind of hunts that you have coming up this year and what, you know, new goals, a guy who's done, you know, to my mind, just about everything there is to do in bow hunting, what keeps you driving forward uh, uh, all the time?
1: Well, I have the North American Super Slam, so I'm looking more towards some international hunts. There's some holes in some of the animal species in Africa that I'd like to get. There's some Plains Game animals I don't have. There's some dangerous animals I don't have. Um, I haven't done a lot of European hunting. I know that's kind of really specialized. I just uh, came back from Spain right before Christmas and shot a really nice ibex over there. I really enjoyed that hunt. I mean, you, you stay in a castle and you hunt the mountains, and it was difficult. It was like hunting mountain goats in Alaska, but you Stay in a castle and use Land Rover to drive into the mountains, and it's the same thing. You're spotting them at a distance with spotting scopes, and then you're pl- plotting a, a strategy to climb above them and try to get on them. Uh, very difficult hunt. Uh, I enjoy that type of stuff, um, and I'm going to do more of that. Of course, because my because the show, uh, you know, kind of caters to North American hunters, I'm going to continue to do quite a bit of North American hunting. I'm going to the Yukon this year for on a moose trip for a show i'm um, i'm going back to alaska for brown bear hunting i enjoy the dangerous bear hunts i'm doing a lion hunt this year which i know a lot of people can't you know don't understand but i have a uh, elephant i have a cape buffalo i have the hippopotamus i have a rhinoceros um... you know I, I have a leopard so i only need a lion to have the big dangerous six african animals with a bow so i'd like to finish that um, I know that's a, it's a, it's that's my big my big big trip this year to do that, and uh, it's it's a kind of a pricey hunt, but then again, it's something that I've been saving for and something that I'd really like to accomplish in my career. I have the other five animals mounted in my trophy room, so to have the lion and have the big six would be a big deal. The Safari Club International has several levels of uh, accomplishments. And, um, you know, one thing that I'd like to say, too, in closing, is that I'm a big believer in registering your animals. You know what I mean? I think you go to the trouble of um, or or all the effort of of buying a hunting license and and hunting in a tree stand or stalking and finally getting your animal, you know, consider, you know, paying that animal homage, you know, take good photographs of that animal, keep your hunting licenses, uh, you know, for every, every hunt you do, I have all my hunting licenses ever, and they have them in plastic bags, and I have them labeled. And so I can go to any year, any hunt, and, ha- and pull my hunting license out, and that's a record of me legally harvesting those animals. And, mm-hmm. you know, keeping track of things like that uh, by registering an animal, whether it be with the Grand Slam Club Ovis, um, Super Slam Program, whether you get a pronghorn or this and that, or registering it at, at with Pope and Young if the size makes the minimum, there's a new club called Whitetail Slam, where you, the whitetails are divided into eight different subgroups across North America. Any four deer is a is a whitetail slam. Uh, registering animals uh, among these slams uh, with SCI and and some of these other organizations, I think are are good for hunting. The money that's that you would spend to do those types of things goes for conservation. It goes for recording those animals for, for all time, you know, whether it be in a Pope and Young book or Whitetail Slam book or uh, Grand Slam Obus book. And you think about it, there's only like 1,700 Grand Slammers ever since 1956 when they started keeping records. There's just 1,700 guys, and that's with rifle, gun, any type of weapon, bow. only 1,700 guys have taken a Grand Slam of sheep. Uh, So these are small elite clubs, and, uh, you know, you say 22 Super Slam guys, 19 have registered. You know, I would suggest to everybody to register. You know, that's how you document what you've done. And -hmm. you sign an affidavit that you legally took the animals, that you took them um, in fair chase. And, and, you know, I think those things are very important for hunters to, to consider. Obviously, you shoot a doe with a legal tag and you want to have some meat for your freezer that's one thing but if you shoot a nice buck pay homage to that deer and uh, the respect. give him the respect he deserves with a really nice photograph and register him in Pope and Young you know
0: yeah sure well that's great Tom I really appreciate your time it was uh, lots of interesting stories some good information and uh, if folks want to keep up with you throughout the year get information about what you've been up to, what you have coming up on your show, or maybe pick up uh, your DVD set or your Super Slam book. How can people uh, reach out to you, Tom? Well, I'm horrible on
1: Facebook. I apologize for that. But um, you have Tom a website
0: Miranda. or something? Tom uh-huh. Yeah,
1: TomMiranda.com is the best place to come uh, to see what I've been doing. My whole Super Slam and North American Big Game is listed on there with the people I hunted with, and um, the gear I used, and it goes through, there's a map that shows where each animal was taken, and a photograph of each animal, and all those things are also addressed in the DVD, Adventure Bow Hunter and the Adventure Bow Hunter book that's uh, available on the website.
0: Well, that's great, Tom. Again, appreciate your time so much. I know you're busy. I know you're only home for a couple of days, and you're heading to the other side of the planet, so... I wish you the very best of luck in New Zealand. I wish you the best of luck throughout 2013. And, uh, you know, hopefully for for our sake here at Peterson's Bowhunting, uh, you'll keep in touch with us, and maybe we'll even see some Tom Miranda uh, adventure stories in future issues of the magazine.
1: That sounds great. I'd be honored to do it.
0: Thanks, Christian. Thanks so much, Tom. Have a great day.
1: Take care, pal. Thanks for listening to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio. Presented by Easton's new ultra micro diameter injection arrows. For more information,
0: pick up a copy of Peterson's Bowhunting Magazine on newsstands now.